And the Oscar goes to, by a nose, Nicole Kidman. Hi, Ryan. Oh, hello. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to the Kid Manifesto. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for being here. Uh, it was, between the two of us, quite the, the Herculean feat to get us both in the same, I guess not the same room, but on the same computer stream at the same time. I know. I felt so guilty. I am the person with the most fluid schedule in the world, and I was giving you a really, like, diva moment where I was like, I can do Tuesday from 4 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a Wednesday morning. It's two thirty a.m. We uh, woke up to do this. Uh, no, it's all right. I've been realizing the time difference between the coasts um, and my like garbagey work schedule also makes it quite difficult. But the real thing is that we're here now yes. and uh, we're ready to go. Um, Ryan, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience for those who don't know? Uh, my name is Ryan Houlihan, and I am here to talk about the prestigious Lee Daniels film, The Paperboy. Uh, a movie which I had famously not seen, and the more this movie went on, the less I realized I learned about it. Like, I truly didn't know anyone besides Nicole and Zac Efron was in it. Um, mm-hmm. The whole thing blew my mind. Um, before we talk about that, though, can we talk about you? Sure. Yes. Um, I don't think this was your first choice, so I always like to ask when I forcibly assign movies to people, um, what would have been your your dream Nicole movie to talk about? All right, there's a trifecta, and I'm going to explain what why they are what they are. I really, really, really would have loved to talk about Practical Magic just because my concept for that podcast would have been to do it in person and with a pitcher of margaritas, and we had to sing most of our review. <laughs> it's good. It's good. When Michael and I did the episode, we made plans to have margaritas afterward, and we did, in fact, have those margaritas. Perfect. So then my dream came true. I, 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 I turned it into a poem, and it came true. Um, so there is that. I really wanted to do Moulin Rouge, but everyone wanted to do that, and I I knew that was going to be hard, but I, I ultimately settled on I'll do Bewitched because I'm a Bewitched super fan. I'm like a uh, like all TV witches I have a thing about, um, and I'm a Nora Ephron super fan. And I thought like this is perfect, and even that clunker of a film was taken, and so I settled for Zac Efron uh, being pissed on. And you know what? Honestly, that seems about right. It's its own kind of magic from Nicole. Uh, I was surprised by how much um, bewitched uh, desire there was in the world from the gays, which I guess it makes sense. Um, There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of people in it, and it didn't work for very specific and fun to talk about reasons. And then you've got the Nora Ephron of it all, which is its own like Cirque du Soleil of podcasting. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked about that movie for over an hour, and like we just scratched the surface in a lot of ways. There's just, there's so much there. It, <laughs> well, for the Kid Manifesto um, 2, the remix, I'll tell, I'll help you take it on. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, um, it's going to be like a noises off situation where I'll have this different guests come back, but they'll be the uh-huh. host and then I'll just kind of like talk through all of them. Um, we'll mm-hmm. just do like a remix. With special guest Sam Hoops. It'll be a flop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 very special guest. Um, <laughs> it's it's like my idea I think I've talked about this on the podcast before I might take this out but I have this dumb idea where it's just a podcast called It Takes a Village where every week I just talk to a different guest about the movie The Village <laughs> <laughs> so like nothing changes for me it's the same topic but like for them it's new just once over definitely take this out but 
That's the funniest thing I've ever heard, and I'm kind of sad it's being taken out of this show. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, for those of you listening, the reason that Ryan and I are hysterical is because we are going to cut something out, but it, it gave us a real good laugh. Um, it, it's perhaps a future project for Ryan, and if you ever see it, <laughs> subscribe immediately. because it's. Listen, if you end up seeing a, a Spice Girls-related podcast from me, I can't give you the concept right, right now because one of you gay people will steal it, but come back, it'll be good. Oh, God, that was good. I'm sweating. It's so hot in my apartment. <laughs> I had to shut all the windows. Um, do, you, do you have a first Nicole memory as far as, like, first thing you remember either seeing her in or some people have, like, the movement that they saw her and knew she was an icon versus just seeing her in things? So I definitely saw her in Batman Forever um, because I was a Batman kid. Um, me and my dad were super into Batman. It was like something we bonded over together. But she didn't stand out for me um, because I have no memory of any film I saw at that age. Uh, but the first time uh, Nicole truly like captivated me and like took me away was I saw Moulin Rouge with um, an aunt I had who had passed, who's since passed away. Um, and I always think of her with that movie because she was just so taken with it. And it was one of the first movies that I understood that you could be taken with. You couldn't, you would, it was the first time I was like, oh, an adult can really think something is magical and cool and like geek out over it. And I hadn't seen an adult do that. And when I watched her like talk about how all the songs from her youth were in the movie and it, it just, it, I became like transfixed and I bought the album and I had the DVD and I got really into it. And then I became sort of obsessed with Nicole, which I still am. Uh, that's really sweet. I'm trying to think. Like, there's just nothing. It's that whole like Paul Rudd in Knocked Up thing where he's like watching his daughter play with bubbles, and he's like, "My kid fucking loves bubbles. Like, I wish I loved anything as much as my kid loves bubbles." And I feel that way sometimes about most things, but like sometimes about film. And then like sometimes I watch a movie like a Moulin Rouge, and I'm just like, "Oh right, like that that could be a thing." Like a Paddington. Yeah, yeah. Paddington is my Moulin Rouge. I truly <laughs> think Paddington is a film that every child nowadays should see, not just because it will give them a lifelong love for Nicole Kidman the way that 101 Dalmatians gave me a lifelong love of Glenn Close, but also because I think that it will teach children to have good taste. And I think Disney movies did that too. And we all saw them when we were kids because they were re-released on VHS. So there was a reason that our parents were like drowning us in them. Um, nowadays, I think kids spend a lot of time watching shitty YouTube videos and like creepypasta stuff. And I think it will be good for kids like diet to see some stuff that's just so spectacularly well made and i think paddington is a perfect example of that i i agree i think it's it sets the standard so high that when i watch other like animated things like i've said this a million times but like, the first 15 minutes of up are good but then yeah. you're like, left with the other like 100 minutes of up and it's just like yeah. paddington just delivers second one that's all <laughs> no it's fantastic anyone who hates on paddington like i'm willing to argue with like even if it's a straight man who has never seen one and is joking that i own a paddington t-shirt i will stand there and argue with that man until i am gay bashed yeah if you don't like paddington turn on your location so ryan and i can fight you uh should we should we talk about the movie i, I feel like we I have even to. Know where to start i feel like I we have to <laughs> I think we're obligated. Um, I mean, I don't need to say that my first gasp was when I heard the voiceover narration for this movie and asked myself, is that, is that Macy Gray? <laughs> if you, two things. One, 
As a gay man, I have a lot to say about this movie. As a white man, it's not all going to be perfect. So please do at me and correct me if I if I interpret things wrong. I don't want to come into um, something a black artist made and just shit on it. Um, but a lot of this is super hashtag problematic. That's the first thing. Second, um, if you ask yourself a question during this film, a la, is that Macy Gray? Or um, is Zac Efron going to get naked again? Or... Um, is Nicole Kidman wearing a wig? Uh, the answer to those questions is always going to be yes. <laughs> yeah, the question of like, did Nicole do her own makeup for this movie? The answer is is in fact yes. Will uh, Will the three women from uh, Little Shop of Horrors, the singing, the chorus singing gals, uh, what are they called? In that uh, the doo-wop trio from Little Shop of Horrors show up before a rape scene? Yes, yes, they will. They're going to show up, and it's going to be a highlight of your film going experience. Yeah, this movie is unbelievable. As you said, the answer to every question is yes. Um, this movie has no restraint and, in fact, like doubles down on that fact. Uh, but I was just constantly gasping. I didn't know McConaughey was in this. Uh, I didn't know David Oyelowo was in this. Um, it, it's it's a lot for me. <laughs> I will, I will also add that before we even get into the plot, um, we're, we've already made this film sound exciting and um, in the moment and like campy and over the top. And I want you to know that it is, but it doesn't make it not boring. It's also surprisingly boring. When we tell you the plot, you're going to say, wow, that movie sounds overstuffed with action. And in a way, you're right. But in another way, nothing happens. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those ones. So I don't know if this episode will air, but I just recorded uh, an episode about Strangerland with Denise Steinberg. And we talked a lot about how like, it's a movie that is so busy, but it amounts to absolutely nothing. Uh, it is such a boring experience. And even like something like um, The Peacemaker, where there's like set pieces blowing up every five minutes. Like it's a movie that is just screaming at you through the television. And like, ultimately what you're left with is like still a really boring experience. Like the movie itself is so dull. Yeah. This was like the Southern Gothic version of like a Michael Bay movie in which like none of the characters have motivations. I don't know why anyone's doing anything except possibly to have sex. And yet it's still overstuffed with things to the point that I don't like maybe the only plot point they never hit was pregnancy. But otherwise, like everything else that could happen in life happens in this movie. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, I guess there is that one like topless pregnant wife character. So really, they do it all. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, it really hits it all. Um, we get a nice little cinematic parallel right at the beginning uh, because we get Zach Efron swimming and multiple Nicole movies have started with her swimming. So I did like that. Mm -hmm. uh, he's also so hot in this movie. I'm sorry to be so basic. This was but, peak like, Zephron bimbo. I mean, like this was his... Uh, uh, the point in time where I realized it didn't matter if he could act because he's basically just like Jane Mansfield. Yeah, totally. And I mean, this is this is like canon basically because the like infamously the original person that was supposed to play this was that Alex Pettifer guy who truly can't do anything except for like Zac Efron at least has like a yeah. sliver of personality. So yeah, Zach at least has a little like cocaine in his eyes that tells me that like he's ready to talk or whatever. Alex Pettifer like. There's a reason why he just evaporated because truly he was like the driest board that I have ever experienced on film. And so I have to think that the vision was to go for a nothing. Do you know, like to like have nothing in that role, like let it be a self insert for the audience. Um, but even that, I don't feel like it fully mm -hmm. was. 
Yeah, it's clear from the way that like Zach Efron is shot and the things that he's made to do, like this movie wants you to want to fuck him. Um, and it's mostly successful. I mean, I did. Sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, li- like, listen, tens across the board for Lee Daniels finding excuses to get Zac Efron in nothing in like tidy whities or speedos or like nothing at all. Like he he came up with those excuses. He integrated them into the plot. And we did get to watch him prance around on camera. There was, and I do want to fuck Zac Efron, let's be clear, but there was, like, also a sort of lack of his him actually being sexual, whereas Nicole, it, through the whole movie, her character of Charlotte Bless, which, by the way, is the most Nicole Kidman character name I've ever heard in my life, um, has to, is, like, oozing raw sexuality, and it's, like, sort of visceral and cat-like the entire movie, and Zac Efron very much seems like a kid who just, like, jerks off sometimes like he didn't like give off this vibe of like i am a sexual being do you know what i mean it was very like 19 year old who like cute do you know what i mean yeah it's all very nebulous um they do talk a lot about him jerking off mainly macy gray talks about it at like in the first five minutes of the movie she like lays down on the floor of his room and like imitates him doing it uh yeah if you're asking yourself will macy gray jerk off in this movie you're right (laughs) There are so many shots of just, like, women with their pantyhose exposed all the way up to their waist. Like, there's a shocking amount of that in this movie. It happens at least three times. Yeah, that's Um, this movie's version of, like, Tarantino feet stuff. Like, it just keeps coming up, and I don't know why. Yeah, it's, uh... I mean, listen, it's hilarious when Macy Gray does it. (laughs) It's a little disturbing when Nicole does it later. Uh, also, I've been fighting the temptation to make a good morning Miss Bless joke since you said her name. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, Macy Gray is the narrator of this movie through the lens of like a true detective, like some sort of like crime interview. Mm-hmm. But did you notice that like in the third act of the movie, I'm just going to skip right to it. Uh, she suddenly becomes omniscient yes. because when they're having sex, she says like, it feels awkward to talk to you about this while you see this. So she's now, like, she's God in the movie, but, like, not until an hour and 20 in. Like, I, I, it took a turn where suddenly she knew details that she couldn't, the character couldn't have known and was describing it as if she knew she was narrating a film rather than, like, an interview. And then I thought, like, did Charlotte write her letters explaining the, like, intricacies of her sex? And if that's true, were they meant for Jack? And why would Jack want to read letters about the girl who got away being manhandled in rough sex with the husband that abused it wait like it all doesn't add up yeah the plot device and you can tell that it's like probably symptomatic of this being a book adapted into a screenplay and they were just like that's not important (laughs) anymore now that the audience isn't reading this Um, Lee Daniels was like I spent five days brainstorming reasons to get this boy into underwear I'm not spending a whole day on making Macy Gray's character work (laughs) Yeah, day five, jellyfish attack. Nicole is also, like, introduced, uh, just, like, listing the boyfriends that she has in jail. Iconic introduction. Absolutely. Um, uh, Although I will say, when she's introduced, my first thought was, nobody who smokes indoors looks like Nicole Kidman. (laughs) Let's be clear. That's a good point. Um, She does make a point to say that she has uh, boyfriends of many different races. She um, also pretty infamously refused to say uh, the N-word in this movie, queen of equality, even in period pieces. 
That I uh, wondered about because I thought like it's definitely her own individual choice and no one should make her say anything she's uncomfortable with. But if a black filmmaker came to me and was like, I want to make a movie and I need you to say this slur because it's part of my vision. I also don't know that I would say no to that. Me. I understand that it's her, totally her choice. But to me, I feel I would feel equally uncomfortable telling them no. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously super complex. It's also really interesting that she, uh, not that the same thing in the least, but he, this is also a movie where he's like, I'd like you to pee on this man. And she's like, well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then he not gave the her the chance again, to edit it out. Even the world right. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was just, that was perusing through IMDb trivia, uh, that I saw that. It's also a movie where she drives the Volkswagen Beetle again, parallel to your Beetle, uh, your Beetlejuice, Jesus Christ, <laughs> to your, uh, Bewitched fascination there. Yeah, I noticed that. Also, my, uh, fiancé is obsessed with Volkswagen Beetles, and we watched that, um, episode of, um, that documentary series on Netflix, and they basically exposed how corrupt Volkswagen is as a company, and it did not shake his uh, belief in the Volkswagen Beetle. And I have to chalk that a little that up to Nicole. Um, this is, I mean, Volkswagen's never going to endorse this podcast, so I can go ahead and say that one time I had a rental and it was a Jetta, and I drove it to my Jewish aunt's house, and she didn't let me park it in the driveway because she said that that car was quote built on the backs of dead Jews. I don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling that you wouldn't. Uh, so we should probably set up the quote-unquote plot of this movie as far as how Nicole is involved with any of these people. We've set up this plot about as well as the movie does. <laughs> sure. Why don't you take a stab at doing us one better? Okay, so Nicole plays a character named Charlotte Bless, who has been writing a uh, serial killer, on, or no, just a murderer, just a regular murderer, on death row. Um his name is Van Wetter. Uh, I don't know his first yeah. name. His name's Hillary, which really... Hillary, that's right, that's right. Hillary Van Wetter. And he uh, killed the hated sheriff who was a racist of the this town called Lately Florida, which doesn't exist and is mostly swamp. And so she manages to get in contact with a writer um, named Ward Jensen and his uh, co-writer, uh, Yardley who come up from Miami to the hometown, their hometown of Lately, Florida, where his dad owns a newspaper, and his name is Jim Jensen, I believe, and he um, is the, the editor of the newspaper, and he own, or he owns the newspaper, and his girlfriend, Ellen, is a reporter there as well, and they have uh, a son that I guess they're raising uh, along with uh, named who's Zach Efron named Jack who is also being raised by a maid named Anita and they all get caught up together and trying to solve this murder and also have sex with each other or near each other and then there's a few rapes and um, and yeah that that's basically where like that's the first two thirds of the movie yeah, did that sound confusing? It is. Because also, we spend no time on this murder. Nobody in this movie cares that there's a whodunit happening. <laughs> this is like no. Agatha Christie like, was asleep or something. Yeah, it's very similar to um, 
another movie of hers, uh, Malice with Alec Baldwin, which is like a Sorkin script that has a serial murderer in it that is the biggest red herring because it, it is just there to move the first third of the plot along and then we never hear from it again. <laughs> it's the same thing. Like, it's so weird that if he wanted to make a movie about Zac Efron and Nicole Kidman having trouble, like, getting together because of an age difference, it's way easier to just make that movie where they, like, meet at the supermarket. <laughs> but instead, he set up, he based it on a book with this whole serial killer plot that it didn't no, need. No, and in fact, I was, like, reading um, the Wikipedia summary once over just to make sure I was ready to go for this. And I forgot that, like, at the very beginning when Macy Gray is being interviewed by the police or whatever, she talks about the sheriff being murdered with a machete, which we hear nothing about for the entire movie until the very, very end, to the point where I was like, oh, I didn't even put that together. <laughs> like, there's no... It's like the thing that's no. supposed to connect the whole movie together in certain regards, and it just it never occurred to me. This is the second time I've seen this movie because when it first came out, I was like, yeah, I want to fuck Zac Efron. So here's my $15. But this is the second, this is the time that I sat down and really watched it. I did not realize they were brothers until near the end of the movie. (laughs) I just thought they like knew each other through the newspaper business. There was, yeah, there was a moment where um, Macy Gray is like doing the dishes in the kitchen and, and Matthew McConaughey's character is like home for the first time in a long while. And you can tell that they really like each other. Uh, because she probably raised him. And um, he asks for something, and it's supposed to be about the dad's girlfriends. And she's like, yeah, she's like the fourth one that's come through. But like it said with so little context that I was just like, the fourth who? Like the what? (laughs) I I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, are these her kids? Are these like people that she's nannied for? And then later they're like, she has two kids. And I was like, well, okay, wasn't that. Yeah, we don't get anything about those two kids. Although I will say, other than Nicole, the only person truly doing their job in this movie is Macy Gray. I don't know what anyone else is exactly doing. I know Zac Efron was just, you know, showing off a spray tan. But Macy Gray is sort of a grounding force in this movie. And her scenes with Jack, Zac Efron's character, are the most watchable of all of it. I would watch the relationship of the two of them over like a, I don't know, a 90-minute movie where they work out the race relation issues of 1969. It's a minor subplot of an otherwise, like, not working film. Yeah, I, the, you're right. The Zac Efron, Macy Gray scenes are the perhaps the only good part about this movie. Um, she really is good. I would like to see her do more. So, anyway, all of this is happening. All of this is going on. They're driving about, and it's very humid. They, they accurately portray Florida in 1969 as being hell on Earth. I thought that was pretty close to what I imagined, like, back swamp florida being like at the time um the clothes are all pretty good i would say nicole is dressed like a period specific kitchen but it's nicole kidman so she can wear anything and she looks great um and then we have a scene where they all go to meet the killer van wetter for the first time and like communicate with him about the case and there's a masturbation scene which in which um Nicole and Van Wetter don't touch themselves. They just sort of eye fuck and both come and then guards pull them apart, which I didn't know was illegal. A a couple of things I have to say about that. One, we should point out that that prisoner, if we haven't said it already, is John Cusack. Oh, oh, how did we forget? Serendipity's own. (laughs) Which I, again, another gasp. Two, we should all be so lucky as to be able to do what they did on camera. And three, uh, I mean, Nicole got a Golden Globe nomination for this movie. Well, because, and I was I was going to say this later, I, but this comes up now. 
I actually think this is a great vehicle for her because it shows you how fucking talented she is that she is so watchable and engaging in an otherwise piece of crap. She's so good in this movie. Yeah, she. I've said this a million times, but she's ga- she's game as fuck. She's ready to do literally anything. Yeah, she sold me that scene. And honestly, like John Cusack kept taking me out of it a little bit. By the way, I do believe that in real life John Cusack is a swamp killer, but we'll get into my theories later. Uh, and I also would have accepted yeah. Joan Cusack in this role, but fine. But she really. She made all of it work. I mean, there was there's a sequence where Zac Efron has a fantasy that he's sleeping with her. Or no, he has a fantasy that she wants to be in love with him and she's wearing a wedding dress and she comes out of her house. And it's like a 30-second scene with lots of 70s trippy transition effects and weird music. And it absolutely doesn't service anything in the plot because we already know that he's in love with her. But it actually is a fun little moment because Nicole Kidman is just fun to watch. She's fun to watch, and then she gets in the car and she makes some jokes about how, like, she needs the windows rolled up because it's going to fuck with her hair, and, like, uh, all the men are sitting in the back just, like, dripping sweat and just pissed off at her. (laughs) Which I imagine she's like in real life, which uh, I stan. Yeah, honestly, fine. Um, This movie has a million little details that mean nothing, like the fact that Matthew McConaughey has Joker scars, basically. Yeah, he has Joker scars that we don't explain. Um, we should also mention that he's secretly gay, and um, he his his is the big rape scene that I don't know why it's in the movie. Um, and that, too, seems to have no relation to what the film is trying to say. That's like a subplot that doesn't go anywhere. And he's hooking up with his co-writer, or he did once, who's, um, we should also mention, um, is pretending to be British, but isn't British. Again, doesn't really tie into the central themes of the film, if there are any. The only real argument is like that they wouldn't hire a black man to work at a newspaper in America if he was just. Which is a great American. point to make, but that's its own movie. It doesn't. Right. It's a weird twist. Also, because from the beginning, we can tell who in this movie is lying and who isn't. Like the characters are practically winking at the screen, being like, "I'm telling the truth." <laughs> We'll come back to this later. And so every reveal of the plot where you're like, he's secretly not British or like there's a scene at the table where they're like, where are you from in London? And he's like, uh, all over. I don't know, London. Anyway, do you guys have any cool laundromats in town? Like that's literally the camera so much that every reveal, you know, is coming. It's been telegraphed. So it doesn't hit you like a ton of bricks to be like, oh, they wouldn't have hired a black man at a newspaper unless he was British and like had some kind of like faux authenticity. That would be a great movie with a great twist, but we, this isn't that movie. And there, that isn't a twist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's also played pretty nefariously too. It's not as if this was some like noble lie that he was doing. It's literally said right before he says like, and I also let Matthew McConaughey blow me once so that I could like get a bylaw. Get ahead. Yeah. Yeah. He got ahead and he got head. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that we're going completely out of order, but it do- truly doesn't matter for this film. I also have to mention a scene where um, Yardley, who is the fake British uh, writer, they, he arrives with Ward in town off of a bus, and they de- they immediately de- declare the town a shithole because everyone's a church, which I guess is supposed to communicate to us that they're, like, urban or whatever, but I don't know. It just seems like if you lived in Florida in 1969, that wouldn't be shocking information. Anyway, they get off the bus, they declare it a shithole, they look around, there's a horse standing in the middle of the parking lot, and Yardley says, whose is this? And Ward says, this is our ride home. And Yardley's like, that's ridiculous. And then a car pulls up that Zac Efron is driving, and he's like, get on in, this is your ride home. 
So was that horse just sitting there for no reason? Because horses are very expensive, and I don't think one was just wandering. What was the point of that horse? I don't know. It didn't seem to be tied up to anything. I, I have no idea. You're going to ask me about the horse? I have no I, idea. I, I don't, I, but it's just, that's the perfect example of things in this movie that don't... At one point when um, Ward is, like, cruising for guys in a bar, the secretly gay reporter whose brother's with Zac Efron, just to catch you up, um, the, like, doo-wop trio from Little Shop of Horrors is performing a song where it's just, he's a dangerous man, he's a dangerous man, for, like, a minute, and it's like, oh, okay, so this is gonna end poorly, like... But that doesn't tie into anything. There's no reason that they knew to sing that song, or it's just sort of, like, telegraphed in the movie that I don't know. Or, like, when they go to the swamp at one point, they go to, like, the Van Wetter swamp house, there's, like, all these pregnant women fighting about ice cream and and chickens, and none of it means anything. It's just sort of in there for color, I guess. Yeah, it reminded me of um, the season of True Blood where they introduce werewolves and they like show the werewolf compound and they're all like vaguely nude and like the you know what I mean like yeah or like whenever they go to like like um, a, a, a perfectly uh, like a Middle Eastern country without a real name on a on a on a drama not necessarily Homeland because they're good about giving things a name but you know like in a drama they'll go to like Agrabah and they look at the locals and they're all like topless and weird and eating things out of baskets. It was like that, but in Florida. So it wasn't like that foreign a culture. The Floridian version of it is the scene where, um, like, they're sitting there and John Cusack is there with his, like, topless pregnant wife. And then, like, a character brings him, like, a, like, a, um, like, that fucking, like, blue, like, pioneer pottery. And it's filled with, like, homemade ice cream. And he just, like, eats it. Which I think we're supposed to think is made out of breast milk because all the women are topless and breastfeeding. I, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> speaking about <laughs> speaking about the food and drink in this movie, did you notice that there's um, a wonderful scene that predicts Get Out when Anita overpours the iced tea at the dinner table? Oh yeah, um, that was my. <laughs> but again, Macy Gray killing it. Macy Gray is a shady maid who like takes down white ladies. That's a cool movie, and also um, let's just the woman that she spills the drink on, Ellen is from New York, and I don't know if it's supposed to be anti-Semitic, her portrayal, but oh, it vaguely is. Absolutely. She reminds me of the wife in A Serious Man. She's just like that very yeah. ma- malcontent Jewish woman. Um, but in this and movie... She's, <laughs> she's the most egregious rapist. Oh, rapist. The, no, sorry. The most egregious rapist comes later in the film. The most egregious racist. And I don't know, like, Northerners are definitely... Nobody's saying that's not true. But it just seems out of place that in a town, like a backwater swamp town where like there was a racist sheriff who was terrorizing black people in the town that the villain of this is like a reporter who doesn't speak to the maid correctly again this is another movie that and that's a great point to make but it just doesn't fit in with what's going on with the rest of the film yeah it's just one of those like um if there is a story that involves having a maid, there is generally a scene where something happens and everyone is like, I'll get it. And then one person is like, no, they'll get it. And yeah. like, she just exists to serve that purpose at the end of the movie. Which, which again, it just seems like a lot of this was just a collection of things that Lee Daniels thought about the era and the time period, which are all 
cool observations and probably not that far from reality, but they just don't come together in any way. And I wish that I'd read the book because I don't know if I should blame it on the book, but I know the guy who wrote the book does not like this movie. So I have to think that something didn't translate. The only thing that's good about that character is when they're all sitting on the patio and they're all talking and she just kind of like looks out at nowhere, almost to the camera and just says, I think I'll get some alligator shoes. <laughs> and then Zac Efron dreams her saying that later in the movie when she's like wearing his mother's ring, which is another plot point that is just woof. Yeah, there's a mother's ring. The, 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 who, the mother isn't dead. She just doesn't have her ring on her. She left them. Yeah, she left them because Anita says like, it's um, a dis damn disgr- a dis damn grace. There it is that she left you. Yeah, and spoiler alert, eventually Jack, Zac Efron's character, again, just to keep you up to date, um, is is later reunited with his mother, but only in voiceover by Macy Gray as the credits roll. Yep, 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 yep. (laughs) Uh, Before we break down the ending for this, I do think we need to, although we've referenced it in passing, I do think we should probably talk about the jellyfish attack. Yeah, we should talk about the jellyfish attack sequence before we get to the, like, ending ending. Um, those are two things that, like, I think this film is known for. Um, but, the, again, not that that's tied to the plot in any sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess pick your poison as far as what we should start with. We should start with the jellyfish. All right, let's start with the jellyfish because it's a little more fun. Yeah, uh... So they're thinking to themselves at this point, we've had Zac Efron naked or virtually naked in his room. Um, we've had him virtually naked out in the sprinklers, uh, in the like garage office when he takes off David's clothes that he's been borrowing. It's like, where else could we get him naked? And they're like, the beach. I'm like, but how can we make it interesting? <laughs> so like, he's reading Lolita and like Nicole won't fuck him. Uh, and he goes to swim in the water and he gets attacked by like at least a hundred jellyfish. Yeah. It wasn't enough for him to be stung by a jellyfish. He had to be like mauled by a school of jellyfish on a mission to kill Zac Efron. And then he's like crawling to shore. Like it's the end of gravity and like everyone's just watching him, but no one's doing anything about it until those two women that like Nicole said would probably fuck him go over and they just immediately know that they have to pee on him. And Nicole says, Something to the effect of, like, if anyone's going to pee on him, it's going to be me. Yeah. Which was weird, because she made a very clear point that she would not give him head, and that she would let anyone else give him head. But when it comes to peeing, she's like, it's very maternal, I guess? It, another, like, I wasn't clear on why the character was doing that, but I appreciated that they got there. It's very sweet that you said that that was maternal. That's really a, a, a sweet spin on that whole sequence of <laughs> Uh, but she does it, and although IMDb of trivia cannot be trusted, there is one that's really funny that says, like, Nicole will never talk about how real that scene is. Which means it was real. <laughs> yeah, it means it was real. Um, I will point out to the listener that peeing on a jellyfish sting doesn't work. Um, you should use salt. Sting goes down in a few hours. Use shaving cream and a razor to remove the tentacles, and then wait for it to heal. Peeing on it does nothing except turn on Lee Daniels. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't not into it. I'll cut myself saying that. Uh, <laughs> and then he wakes up and Anita is in his room and they have a nice sweet moment. Um, all so in good. all, it wasn't a very salacious scene. It, like, it no. got a lot of coverage because Zac Efron had urine on him. But it, of the things that happened in this movie, it's pretty tame. Yeah, it's pretty perfunctory. Um, I would say that like 
infinitely worse is the end of the movie where Nicole and John Cusack have like aggressive, uh, like non-consensual washing machine sex. Yeah. uh, There's a lot of stuff in this movie where her character, I understand that a lot of women who get involved with like bad men and a lot of men for that fact who do as well, um, ignore warning signals. But most of this movie is John Cusack, like basically mouthing the words, I'm going to murder again. Like, or like, (laughs) I hate you and want to use your body like meat over and over again. And at one point he's having very rough sex with her, non-consensually choking her, like after throwing her roommate out of the apartment and then telling her she has to move to a swamp. And she's like, I don't want to move to a swamp. And he's like, you're gonna. And it's like, you know, he killed people, right? Like this guy, definitely this guy's killing people on his way over to see you. Yeah. She's the scene where she's like actually in the swamp and she's trying to get that other woman to like mail Ooh. her letter. Ooh. It's just like, it's that Adore Delano, like, I don't belong here <laughs> That was really hard to watch. That was tough stuff. That, there, that scene where, like, what is supposed to, guess, be a mentally, like, uh, adult or deficient person is convincing her to accept a gift of roosters or something, and... She's trying well, to get I'll her tell, to... I'll tell you what the problem is. Yeah, right. please the tell me. Is she's got a rooster that's gone a little too haywire and he can't be around the hens. And Nicole only has hens. So could Nicole house her three hens so that she could have her rooster until the heat dies down and then they can take back the hens. That's what's going on. So it's another very clunky metaphor for the fact that her chosen man is a psychopath. <laughs> Sure. Also, Nicole says no to that favor, and then immediately after is like, but could you also mail this letter for me and not tell my husband ever? My thinking was like, definitely take the rooster, because she'll, like, quid pro quo. Ryan, you clearly went listening to my explanation, which was very clear, which is like, she's gonna take the three hens, because she only has hens. And then the lady's gonna keep the rooster. I'll write it down for you after this. It's fine. I still am not... Okay, I'm sorry. I'm from Long Island. I'm still not understanding why anyone has hens to begin with. There's a scene where they got an alligator that was traumatic for me because I didn't even realize people did that. Oh, yeah. That brings up a good point, which is Zac Efron throws up multiple times in this movie, uh, but we don't really see it. Yeah. Because um, when Nicole and John have their like long-distance sex scene... Uh, they make it a point to show that Matthew McConaughey has a boner and he's covering it up. And then Anita in voiceover says, like, uh, like Jack came home and, and threw up. And then later with the alligator, he's, like, very nauseous. So this boy just can't handle anything. Except being peed on, which he was like, okay. Yeah, because he was, like, mostly passed out. Yeah. Um, I, um, I appreciate the number of times that he, um, that we're shown footage of him swimming, um, just basically, either anytime someone mentions that he's a swimmer, or he used to swim, we're, like, shown footage of him in a Speedo swimming at a college, like, Olympic-sized pool. Yeah, which I appreciated that. got fired from that team because he drained that pool, which I guess was, like, a prank or something. Yeah, again, all of this is, like, said once in passing, and it really isn't given as a motivation for anyone's behavior. Yeah, we were told a lot. Um, how about the part where she's in the hotel and she says she looks ugly to Zac Efron and it's literally the prettiest she looks in the entire movie. Yeah, I know. She does say the word fag once in this movie, which proves, again, that Nicole can and will say faggot. Oh, she's allowed to. She's given full license by both me and Lee Daniels. 
Speaking of, uh, um, there is this scene in the film, which I feel necessary to discuss. The There's a rape scene where Matthew McConaughey cruises two guys in a bar, and these two black guys go home with him, and it's pretty clear that like everyone sort of understands what's going on. I'm not sure that Jack's character does, but Charlotte definitely knows that he's going to have sex with these men. And then we're like smash cut to them hearing like a commotion in his room and they go to look and he's been like hogtied and beaten and the men are just kind of like hanging out with him. Like, I, I, I don't know if this is like their, I, I didn't understand this completely. Like, are these men basically also killers or like abusers? Are they robbing him? If they aren't just robbing him, they definitely are like sadomasochists enjoying like beating and raping him. Um, and all of this comes out of sort of nowhere as a plot point. Um, and it's extremely gratuitous. I don't know if this is like internalized Lee Daniels punishing himself stuff or what it is, but I mean, he's not just like robbed and raped. He is, um, he's given a bad eye. He is thrown into the throes of addiction. Uh, his career is ruined. He's hospitalized. It, it, it's just all really, really unnecessary. Um, and I don't know what it was for other than to motivate, like, Nicole Kidman's character of Charlotte to sleep with his little brother who's, like, upset by his rape. Um, it just, it was a really, really, really ridiculous punishment, and it just kept going to the point that we, like, saw his dusty dildo collection that he had as, like, in order to further shame him. And I, uh, it is, like, biblical punishment. It was just so over the top. It's a lot. This movie uh, has, like, two, I would say, like, one sincerely sympathetic character. Well, Macy Gray aside, because she does everything that she needs to. Like, one sympathetic character, and then one character that it's trying to, like, shoehorn into being sympathetic. And it, like, redeems them. Not at all. It punishes them consistently. And then it kills both of those characters. So, like, what is it trying to say yeah. about any of that? Yeah, he gets killed at the end. And, like, after he was, like, an agoraphobe and an alcoholic and, like, all of this stuff. Just for, like, picking up a couple guys at a bar? Like, I, it just doesn't feel... And is this supposed to show us, like, the, like, injustice of the time period? Because even then, like, it seems like that wasn't society doing that. That was just, like, two random gay guys. It's another instance of, like, it, like, like the whole is Mike Pence secretly gay thing, which is a way of making violence that happens to gay people also gay people's fault. Right. Yeah, it's completely unclear, like, what the motivations of those men are. There is, like, he's also on, like, a plastic tarp, because like, remember how Zach Efron just keeps saying, like, what's, what's with the oh, plastics? Yeah. Like, I guess the intent was to kill him. I don't know, it's so convoluted. There's, like, a lot of murderers floating around this tiny Florida town. Which, again, like, I'm not saying that's not believable. I'm saying, like, what's the point of it all? Right. Uh, but I will say that when he's got a milky eye and he's been abused and beaten down and we look at his dusty dildos and he's drinking while he shits himself, we still get a shot of how fuckable Matt, Matt McConaughey is. Which, I mean, like, sure give it is. up for Lee Daniels. He managed to shoehorn that in as well. Yeah, we get a nice, like, um, it's like a sexier phantom thread because he's, like, on the toilet, but he's sideways and naked, so we get, like, a profile shot. Yeah, it's just, just kidding. Odd. Phantom thread is the sexiest thing I've ever seen. I take it back. <laughs> then he gets an eye patch at the end, which is, like, one last fuck you. 
Yeah, it was like a final injustice for him, like, a, and like, oh, the whole town can see it. And at one point, someone comes up to him and goes, I heard stories about what happened to you. And he's like, it's all true. Just kidding. And it's like, so the whole town has to know what happened to him in order for him to like, fully be humiliated from every angle? Yeah, the only, the only like insult that gets lobbed at him that's worthwhile is when they're on the boat with Zac Efron and he says, you look like a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> but also there's like a weirdly incesty, like homoerotic thing where like Zac Efron is like laying back in his arms and they're like body to body talking about how they missed each other. And I was like, this is very like stepbrothers do an amateur porn. Yeah, it's like, no, it's like when you ride the Matterhorn with your brother and they're those double wide seats, so you have to sit like that and you just sit like that with your brother and it's really nice. <laughs> After you look at his dusty dildo collection. Yeah, uh, that's the third and final time that you're allowed to say that on this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was truly like I paused the film and was like, come on. Um, so like, I think what happens is Nicole gets that letter mailed out but it ends up in anita's hands because it's basically just like her and ww the dad and uh ellen so she like keeps it because she doesn't want the dad to see um and she doesn't really get a chance to give it to zach efron until the wedding of his father and ellen where he's like in the kitchen and like has a sweet moment where uh he like apologizes for the thousandth time because he should constantly be apologizing to her um so then he and matthew mcconaughey get in that boat in their wedding clothes and uh, Matthew McConaughey touches an electric fence because there's never enough punishment that he can suffer as a gay person. Uh, and then basically, like, Nicole is already dead. Like, we just cut to the chase. She's yeah, already do dead. Do we think that Chuckles the Chicken Head Lady showed What's-His-Face the killer the letter first? Or do you think that, like, Van Wetter caught her trying to leave? Because she's, like, freshly dead. Like, she, like, was just... I guess it would have to be that she was trying to leave for the wedding. I guess she probably mailed it or got it mailed and then, like, didn't think he was coming and then was like, it's the day of the wedding. It's now or never. Uh-huh. Because she was pretty together. Obviously, she looked like she was in her going out clothes. But, like, he had definitely just did the deed um, when they pull up and they're like, come on out of here. And he's like, no, I won't. And it's like, Okay, so we're going to do, like, the, the the movie, which, by the way, was tragically born without a tone, takes a sharp tone turn into, like, a thriller hunting them down sequence that also doesn't have an ending. Yeah, it's a very most dangerous game thing uh, where Zac Efron, like, as the final girl, has to, like, hide under... Like, he has to use his swimmer training, I guess, is the payoff, because he's holding his breath. Which, again, we get a shot of him yeah. swimming. A sexy shot of him swimming while but he's like, being hunted down. All this down. movie has done is just be like, there's alligators, there's alligators, there's alligators. And except for this scene, there are no alligators. Uh, yeah, they even said there's snakes and leeches. We saw jellyfish in the water. Like, Florida wants to kill you like Australia wants to kill you. And nobody can tell you about it like Nicole Kidman. And then this water is perfectly safe. And we're, we don't even show him surviving. We're just told, like, well, of course he survived. He's a swimmer. Like, that's crazy! Yeah, he survives. There's literally a shot where, like, I think we're supposed to believe that he's, like, directly under the boat because, like, J John Cusack's light is directly in the camera as if we're directly under him. Um, but somehow he survives through that and John Cusack doesn't see him. Uh, and then he just escapes because then later uh, Macy Gray, god of this movie, tells us that he was convicted. 
Oh, uh, no, she tells us that he went to a department store in New York City and met uh, Kate Beckinsale, and they had a star-crossed romance <laughs> and ended up at a restaurant called Serenade. Right, 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 right. I forgot. <laughs> that's what happens, and that's the end of the movie. And that's how the movie ends. <laughs> oh, and Jack is reunited with his mother in voiceover. So this whole, like, maternal sex arc with Nicole Kidman's character was for Macy Gray to tell you, like, as told by Ginger. I get it. <laughs> Yeah, she's like, and in in the end, wasn't that all how we were told by Ginger? Wow, you're being told this story by Ginger, by a Ginger on a podcast. I'm gonna. I just want you to know that normally I ask guests what song they'd like to be played out to, but I'm gonna play us out to the "As Told by Ginger" theme song. Excellent. That's a perfect choice. Uh, yeah, she just ends it. There's like a long shot of Zac Efron with um, the dead bodies of his uh, adult lover and brother laying in the boat and he just kind of like rides off into the night and Macy Gray tells us how it is and that's it. That's it. That's the paper boy. Everybody got what they deserved. Oh my god, my fucking home body again. Oh, hey, Siri, stop. Oh, Jesus Christ. Hold on, I'm sorry. I mean, I guess this is a testament to how good it is and no matter how fucking far away I sit from it, it will still go off. I'm glad that it's one customer is really happy with this purchase. Yep, it's me. Um, <laughs> so all in all, this movie um, ends with everybody getting what they deserve. Every single character, except Ellen from New York, who made out like a bandit. Oh, seriously. I think we even forgot to mention that not only did she get married and got that ring, but she became the editor-in-chief of that paper. Yeah. She just arbitrarily now the editor of the chief of the paper, which by the way, the first time we're introduced to her, she's massaging his dad's feet in what is possibly the most disgusting scene I've ever seen. She's bad mouthing Shirley Jackson and massaging the dad's feet, and it is the most stomach turning thing I've ever seen. Lee Daniels truly knows how to make me hard and vomit like I'm Zach Efron. Yeah. Yeah, she has no business running a paper, but uh she sure is by the end of the movie. I guess she's the hero. <laughs> yeah, if only she'd pretended to be British, she would have got there faster. By the way, Yardley ends the movie with a book deal, um, and he's writing a book about his time in uh, lately Florida, um, which, I mean, it's like, okay, cool, he got a movie about Yardley, so why are we given so much information? I wish they had done the thing where, like, at the very end, like, they did, like, a post-ending where Zac Efron was like, what was the name of Yardley's book? And someone was just like, the paperboy, and then it ended. <laughs> Uh, um well let's do you want to try to rate this movie uh it's a tough one to rate you know what yeah let's do this all right so here's what's gonna happen i'm gonna give you some one through five categories um five is gonna be the high mark here uh, on different elements of the movie. They can be about Nicole or the movie as a whole. It's really up to you to justify. Uh, and your score will put you in competition for the very, very prestigious Golden Compass Award. Um, and th- thank you. And the first one to kick us off are going to be the wigs in the movie, uh, one through five. And I will say that Nicole in this movie refers to the fact that she's wearing a wig. Yeah, I'm giving this a full five because this was pre-Roxy Andrews and we got wig beneath a wig reveal in the film and we pretend like it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. We really sloughed it off. I, we did not talk about it. And again, I think it's the first and perhaps the only movie where she refers to her wig in the movie. Uh, next up is going to be the accents in the movie, one through five. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Matthew McConaughey, obviously a five. Everybody else, I mean, Yardley was lying, so I guess that is why that was off. Um, I do like the switch when he like is talking, and then mid sentence he switches to this yeah. like, New York voice. If, if we knew that that wasn't coming, it would have been such a cool moment. It's so well acted. Sure. Um, but okay, overall, I'm gonna give it a three because Zach Efron's accent is so inconsistent. It gets really, really deep and heavy in the last 15 minutes. And maybe it's just to show that he's a changed man because his like queer brother got beat up. Yeah, it, it's it like a heavy turn. But Nicole's is fine, and sometimes Nicole's accents can be, I love her so much, but sometimes her American accents can be a little cutesy, but this was fine. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. I think a three is appropriate based on the uh, summative average. Um, okay, next one up is the Naomi Watts score. For those of you who don't know, a high score on this just suggests a high level of connectivity of Naomi to this movie. Uh, examples being, like, did, was she auditioning for it? Um, does she have a Blu-ray copy of it? Uh, do her and Nicole text about it? That sort of thing. I'm giving this a two because Nicole and her absolutely texted that she was going to have to pee on Zac Efron and she was like, oh my god, text me when you did it. And Nicole like sent it with a few like crazy like at the time emoticon like faces like, oh my god, surprise face, scared face. Oh my god. Naomi was like, how did it go? And she's like, pretty good. But no more than that because Lee Daniels was not casting Naomi Watts in this role. Right, 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 right. Uh... I'm trying to think. Was there any other casting? Sofia Vergara was the original actress. That's what it was. Yeah, wild. That's a, it's a uh, real that's a 180 by Daniels on the role. But okay, I like that he was open to options. Yeah, he um, went from the warmest worse. woman in the world to possibly one of the women uh, in the world. Did you did you happen to see today? Um, this is going to be so outdated, but on Tumblr, there was a Q&A with Ms. Cracker, and they asked her who, like, her celebrity icon was, and she said Nicole Kidman, because she's, like, the coolest... She said she's, like, the most icy woman on the planet, but she still, like, makes you fall in love with her. No, but that's an incredible, incredible quote from Ms. Cracker, and only increases my esteem for her. I know. I tweeted today. I said, Ms. Cracker, you can come on the podcast and literally do any episode that you want. I will just replace the episode with whatever one you want to do. <laughs> no, that's, uh, maybe- that's correct. Maybe she'll do the paperboy and this episode will never air and we'll be the only ones that know. What an honor it would be. I just want to be at the end saying, thank you. You did it better than I ever could. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just mash the two up. Um, (laughs) The next one is going to be approachability. So if you see uh, Miss Charlotte Bless at like a small dinner function or um, I don't know, like a crawfish cookout or something that she would be at, how likely are you to strike up a conversation? Uh, On a scale of one to five, a solid 50.2. Two. Uh, she is the most approachable person. I would have a great time with Charlotte Bless. She is the kind of damaged bird who drinks and wears scanty clothes that I can really make a night of. And I would love her. And I would welcome her into my clique anytime. Uh, I am inclined to agree with you. There are there are surprisingly not as many fives on that scale as I thought, but this is definitely one of them. I yeah, think this she is a five. Is this is a solid person five. to me. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, Scientology scale on a scale of one through five. How suppressive to the teachings of Scientology do you think this movie is? A solid five. Uh, this mm-hmm. movie just jam packs in a lot of things that Scientology wants to pretend doesn't exist, um, and at no point does Elizabeth Moss or Kirstie Alley pop up to give them an out. Uh, I'm thrilled with the amount of anti-Scientology happening in this film. 
Yeah, I don't know formally what Scientology stance on what I will call piss play is, but I assume that it's probably not for it, you know? It's one of those things that's reserved for David Miscavige, uh, and the rest of us just have to get by. Yeah. Uh, Lastly, we've got overall level of iconicness um, as this movie pertains to Nicole's career. Honestly, you would think I would give this a two because the film itself is not very good. I will give this a four because her pissing on Zac Efron introduced her to an entirely new generation of viewers. It also, I think, was during a turning point in her career where everyone was like, oh yeah, she's really good again. Even though she'd always been good, for some reason, this was a film where people were like, oh yeah, Nicole can do a whole bunch of things other than being beautiful. And... I think this might have actually led to other parts for her. So I'm going to give this a four. Uh, I am inclined to agree with you. I think that it is uh, right up there. I mean, if we look at Lee Daniel's career, he's post-Precious and he's pre-The Butler. The man is hot. Uh, I think that Nicole has a committed history of working with interesting directors when they're at their peak. Um, She likes to take work that is new and exciting. I also think that like, this movie's been a Netflix movie since it came out, and I mean that as a positive, because, like, when I hear people talk about her, I hear this movie get brought up way more than I think it would ever happen in, like, a pre-Netflix world. Um, I also think, like, for normies, the 70s transitions and, like, period, period like, specificness of it all is more fun than we're giving it credit for. Because I even had some fun with it. Even though it adds nothing to the film, and it does not tie in thematically, and I don't know that it's good filmmaking, it is fun. There's a lot of, like, like, there's a lot of the film that's, like, gimmicky, but, like, a good time. And I think that that makes for a good Netflix movie. I do, too. Um, Okay, so this actually, this scale is tried and true. I think this scale is actual science, because... This gives you a 24 out of 30. And if I'm looking at the other 24s on this scale, uh, we have Stoker, which is like a, the perfect example of what you and I both just said. Um, yeah. The movie has been on Netflix forever, forever. We're going to Park Chan-wook. Um, super out there. Nothing like it in Nicole's career. Uh, we've got, oh, what else? We've got uh, Birth. No secret that that is my favorite Nicole performance. It's, it's fucking good. And we're one behind the Stepford Wives. Incredible. This is a great place to be. This is a good place to be. I'm thrilled about this. Um, yeah, I think this scale is hard science. I'm really going to give myself a pat on the back because it all comes well, Anything that gets me within, like, a league of MILF Island, I'm thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to look and see. Yeah, so Practical Magic and To Die For, rightfully tied as the current high score is 27. So you are, but you're within a standard deviation of that. And and honestly, for my fourth choice film, I'm fine with that. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, I do have one last task for you if you're up for it. Sure. Uh, So as I've been asking, and I think you probably know at this point, all of my guests, um, we've we've talked about Big Little Lies in passing over this last hour, but I'm going to ask you to talk about it uh, once more. The only trick is I'm going to ask you to do it in 60 seconds. Um, So what I'll do is I'll put time on the clock and you'll have a full minute to uh, share whatever you think is important to know about Big Little Lies Season 1 for our guests. Okay. Um, Big Little Lies 
is based on um, a wonderful book. Uh, it's about essentially the ways that a single man and force of the patriarchy can take down a whole bunch of very diverse women with different goals and personalities and lifestyles um, and can tear through their lives and the way that women can fight back by working together and supporting each other. Um, in it, uh, Reese Witherspoon stars as Madeline and Nicole Kidman stars as Celeste, who are best friends, and they um, are introduced to Shailene Woodley's character, Jane, who at no point eats clay or worships the moon, which is new for Shailene Woodley. Uh, Zoe Kravitz is also in it as um, who is... Uh, another like a member of this small town um, and in the town there's a big controversy over kids bullying each other um, but the true controversy at the heart of everything and what's corrupting the children and the wives is this husband Perry that's married to Nicole Kidman who's abusive and evil and a rapist mm. yes was, <laughs> I loved Big Little Lies that was pretty on the money <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty damn good uh, a couple of columns I didn't mention Adam Scott which was a crime you know, it's hard to get everyone. Um, some people are really upset when they forget about Robin Weigert. Some people are f- upset when they forget about Monterey. I mean, you can't, you truly can't do it all. I do like that you're the first yeah. person. Yeah, and I wanted to get my opinion of why there should be a season two and why I'm fine with Meryl being in it because I thought it would be spicy and get the gays upset, but I didn't have enough time. Uh, I mean, do you, got, do you have like an elevator pitch for that real quick? I think that anything that allows very powerful women to do work that they really care about together for good money is great. I think Meryl Streep ends up being great and even the worst drivel. And uh, honestly, even if it's terrible, I'm not a person who thinks that a bad sequel ruins a good movie. There's lots of terrible Adam's Family stuff and Adam's Family Values still holds up. So if this sucks, we still have the first season and we can pretend it never happened. Just like my parents do with my other siblings. (laughs) I I was the one that worked. (laughs) I think that's all true. I said this already, but I'm just genuinely so excited that, like, Meryl Streep kind of invented, and we all forget, like, Angels in America was, like, this huge, giant, like, quote-unquote, like, silver screen actors, like, coming, like, doing us the service of coming to television in a lot of ways. And that game has changed so much since then uh, that I'm excited for her to do it, like, on a, on a different scale. I don't really know what I'm saying there, but there's a point somewhere in there. No, I agree. I think it's a watershed moment where I think she was one of the last people, she was one of the first people to make her way onto prestige television, and she's one of the last people to, like, make a home there. Thank you. That was a very elegant version of what I was trying to say, and also the reason <laughs> that I had you on this podcast. So I think with that, that's probably a good place for us to leave it. Uh, Ryan, where can people find you and your work online? And you things. can find me at Ryan Houlihan on Twitter or Instagram. Um, Twitter is full of Real Housewife tweets, and Instagram is full of pictures of graffiti. Um, and I also have another podcast called Tomorrow with Joshua Topolsky that stars my friend Josh, and one called uh, How Was Your Week with Julie Klausner that stars my friend Julie. Both of those people are very talented, and I put a lot of work into those things, and they're very good, and I'm proud of them. Um, and then... Um, coming up soon, I have uh, my own solo vehicle called The Ryan Houlihan Show, which will be a streaming talk show, um, which you can find if you just follow me on Twitter. You'll hear about it. Uh, this has been really exciting for me personally, just as a person who has uh, listened to How Was Your Week from the beginning, uh, to have hot lips on the pod. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Um, I will say that if you want to follow this podcast, uh, you can do so at the Kid Manifesto on Twitter. It's just dank Nicole memes all the time. Uh, and you can also follow me personally at Mr. Sam Harps on Twitter. Outside of that, you know, uh, subscribe and review. Those things help. 
really to all the podcasts we mentioned in the last five minutes. And um, as I mentioned already, you're going to get played out to the As Told by Ginger theme song. Uh, Ryan, thank you again. Thank you so much. This was a complete honor. I love you, Nicole. <laughs> Nicole, if you're listening, and you probably are at this point, uh, come get up at 2.30 in the morning and podcast with us. Yay! <laughs> Bye, Ryan. Bye. Someone once told me the grass is much greener on the other side. Well, I paid a visit while it's possible I missed it. It seemed different yet exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much greener on the other side.